morning. Great to be with you all this morning. Um, for kids that are going to the kids' lesson, you're welcome to go back to the lobby uh, now. And for the rest of us, we will be continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark. We've, we find ourselves in the midst of the passion of Jesus, these last, literally, the last hours of his life. Most recently, we, we, we saw Jesus betrayed, arrested, and then we saw him deserted by his disciples as they all ran away. And this morning, as we look at starting at verse 53 of chapter 14, we find Jesus on trial. So let's look at it now, chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimonies didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you be present with us now? Would would you send Holy Spirit to us now as we hear your word? Might your word be at work in our hearts, moving us making us, changing us, molding us. Would you speak to us this morning? And might our encounter with your word this morning, as we pray every encounter that we have with your word, would it leave us changed? Would it continue to do its work of molding us more and more into the image of the Christ, our Messiah, Jesus Christ? in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Relatively recently, there's been uh, a bit of rush of a a lot of documentaries and stories and all about people who who have been imprisoned for quite often long periods of time, and then they're exonerated. You know, suddenly DNA evidence comes out, something comes out that finds out that they've been in prison for years wrongfully. One such story is of Khalif Browder. He was walking home with a friend one night, and the police come, and, and they nab him, and frisk him, and ask him. They, they say, you stole something, that he stole a book bag. 
and they search him. They find nothing. He says, I didn't steal anything. His friend says, I didn't steal anything. But there in the back of the police car is a man who says, no, yes, he stole it from me. He took it from me. And the interesting thing is, is this person who was accusing him, his, his story changed over time. Pretty soon, at first it was that night it happened. And then it was like, oh, no, it happened like a week ago. And it continued to change in that kind of way. And then at some point it was, well, they tried, he tried to rob me. And this whole time, Browder, he, he finds himself in prison. He was put away. He finds himself um, at Rikers Island for three years without trial. And then finally, after three years, the district attorney drops the charges against him. And we hear something like that, and we, 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 we kind of struggle a little bit. The injustice, somebody in prison for that long, no trial, no real witness against him. The, witness, the one witness changes his mind and keeps changing his story. Injustices like this affect our hearts. And as we see the injustice that Jesus is going through, as, as we go through this passion of the Christ, we too, our hearts should be stirred at the incredible injustice and the injustice that we see this morning at this, this trial, supposed trial of Jesus. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, we'll come back to Peter next week. This morning, we're just going to leave him warming himself at the fire. We'll talk more about him next week. But this week, here's Jesus. And wh- where is he? He's, he's brought to the high priest's house for a trial in the middle of the night. This wasn't the usual time that these things would take place, okay? And usually, they wouldn't gather at the high priest's house in the cover of night. But yet, yet here they are in this kangaroo court that comes together on this night. And, and why do we say that? What, what's so bad about what's going on? Just look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin, all these people who are sitting in judgment over Jesus, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. You see, before the trial even takes place, they, they've already decided his guilt. What they're looking for that night is just something to convict him on. Something that can be the thing that they can point to. See, this is the reason why, why we convicted him. And so what do they do? We, we, we see them trying to manufacture evidence, verse 56, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimonies, they, they didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So you have these witnesses coming forward, all these people supposedly bringing evidence, but there's a problem with their testimony, kind of like the story that we heard a moment ago about Mr. Browder and and the, the accusations against him. And we see it continued in verse 59, do you see? Yet even about this, their testimony didn't agree. You see, these witnesses are coming forward, making accusations about Jesus, but none of their stories line up, okay? And that's a major problem when you have witnesses and none of their stories match each other. And it was a major problem for the Sanhedrin because while they could do many things that night and kind of jump over traditions and all of how trials were to be held and stuff, what they couldn't jump over was Deuteronomy 19. 
where Moses had said, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That was problematic for the Sanhedrin as they met that night because they didn't have two witnesses, much less three. They couldn't find them. They're witnesses. They all disagreed with one another. And it's at that point that the the high priest seems to be kind of frustrated with the proceedings because they're not getting the outcome that they want. They want this to be a, a quick trial and quickly put him away. And so the chief priest, he stands up and he goes over to Jesus and he asks him directly, verse 60, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And what does Jesus do? He remained silent. He made no answer. You see, Jesus saw these silly charges that were being made against him, that were being brought by these witnesses, and and there was no need to respond. He knew that this was an unfair trial. He knew they had already come up with their verdict and were just looking for something to convict. And Jesus remained silent amidst accusations just flying at him. Darts and arrows just flying at him. And what does he do? He remains silent. But then, then the, the, the chief priest, he, he makes that, the high priest, he makes that fateful decision of asking the question. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now understand what he's really asking. He's really asking, are you the Christ, the son of God? But being the high priest, he didn't want to commit blasphemy by, by misusing God's name. So they would replace it with other things. And here he replaced it with the blessed. And that's why if you look in your Bible, it's actually capitalized here. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus asked with a direct question. And knowing that the judges standing there against him needed to hear and know the truth of who he really was, he responded. He said, I am. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, At the right hand, understand this is like what the high priest did a moment ago. At the right hand of God, okay, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And finally, with these words of Jesus, they at that moment, they have what they've desired and what they've been looking for. What do we see the high priest do? He tears his garments and he says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? There, there's nothing more to say. We don't need to hear any more witnesses. We are now the witnesses to what he's just said, this incredible blasphemy. And they all condemned him as deserving death. From the very beginning, this, these judges around Jesus, the Sanhedrin, they were convinced. They were convinced of their need to convict Jesus. And they worked from that assumption to get the end that they wanted, and that's where they ended up, right? Now, as we think about this, we need to confront what we really think about what Jesus said here. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a bold declaration that he makes, and we have to decide what we really think and what we really believe about it. Nobody, I think, puts it more beautifully than C.S. Lewis. Some of you have heard this before. I'm trying, C.S. Lewis says, to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing 
that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, that we must not say. A man who was, who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. The kind of man who said the thing that we just read Jesus saying, saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. He can't just be some teacher, as Lewis goes on to say. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else, or else, he would be the devil of hell. You, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet, and you can call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, as Lewis puts elsewhere, what, what we do and what the the Sanhedrin was doing on that day, the religious leaders, is they were putting God, they were putting Jesus into the dock. Do you know what a dock is in old-timey courtrooms? And I think they still use it overseas in some places. We don't have it in America anymore. But, but a dock where the, where the defendant, the criminal defendant, would be seated, often with railings and stuff around him, sitting alone inside this area during trial, set off from everyone else, seated in the dock while his trial took place. Okay, Jesus on that night, was seated in the dock. And the religious leaders were standing over him to decide and, and make judgments against him. Okay? You and I, we need to understand, well, well, he didn't deserve that. He was innocent, right? There's no reason why he should have been in the dock that night. If you and I are honest, we, we do the same thing. We, too, put Jesus in the dock. We put him in that same seat that the Sanhedrin did, judging him, deciding whether or not to believe him or not, deciding whether or not we're going to submit to him or not. De- deciding, you know, is he, you know, maybe at times it's like deciding, is he really worth it? Can, can I really follow him? And in the midst of us putting Jesus in the dock, we need to remember and understand that Lewis's words are so correct. Ultimately, there can be no mild response to this Jesus. This Jesus who says, I am the Christ, the Messiah, the long-promised one. And we must deal with it. He is uh, either a lunatic, as, as Lewis says, or he is a liar, and therefore evil. Or he is, in fact, the Messiah. There is no middle ground for us this morning. Now, the, the religious leaders on that night, they wanted him to be, which one? The liar. <laughs> they came convinced that he was lying about who he was. And sometimes we do this too, uh, uh, what the religious leaders did, where, where we have somebody before us, we, we begin to get to know somebody, we see him, and we immediately make a judgment about him. And we'll immediately make a judgment like, there's something wrong with this person. Okay. Sometimes your spidey sense may be right, I guess. But too often what we do is, is we make that immediate judgment about somebody. And then we start looking. And we, we look for those little things. And we start putting those little things together that justifies 
our initial dislike of them. And we convict them. Exactly what the religious leaders were doing with Jesus. They didn't like him. There was something deep-seated about it underneath. What, what was their real problem? Why, why were they so convinced? And why did they want to destroy Jesus so badly? I think, interestingly enough, Pilate, who Jesus is going to meet in, in a couple of weeks, as far as we work our way through Mark, I think Pilate gets it right. You know what Pilate says about the religious leaders and their motives? Chapter 15, verse 10, he says this. For he, Pilate, perceived, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. It was out of jealousy. They, they were jealous of Jesus. What was it? Was it the big crowds that he attracted? Was it his character that, that they couldn't seem to get around and they couldn't catch him with anything, any sin? Was it the fact that he, he, he ministered to the least of these? Was it, was it the fact that he was willing to minister to sinners and to the lost? What was it? What, what, what is it that they were, were jealous at? But they were jealous of him. Maybe they knew and they looked at Jesus and they saw who they should be. They saw that they should be more like him and they knew it deep down whether they wanted to admit it or not. And they were jealous of him. You see, so, and as a result of this seed of jealousy that worked into them from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, they failed to even consider the possibility that Jesus could be telling the truth. They refused to believe it. They, they start from a posture, understand, as, as this trial starts from a posture of unbelief, determined to get rid of him. Their heart was already defective in that way. Their, their heart was already hardened towards Jesus in a very deep way. And, and no amount of evidence would ever convince them otherwise. You, you understand these religious leaders, they likely saw a lot more of Jesus than just this night at this trial. Many of them were probably sitting in, if you will, on many of Jesus' teaching. They heard him teach. Some of them likely saw him perform miracles. And certainly they heard the stories, and they met the people that he'd healed. But it wasn't enough. No amount of evidence would ever be enough. They were unwilling to evaluate the fact that what he was saying could be true. They were expecting the Messiah. Okay? These were people who, who were expecting the, the Messiah, but they refused to believe that Jesus before them could possibly be him. What was it about Jesus? Was it his humble birth? Was it the fact that he didn't work his way up the religious ranks like everybody else? Was it that he was willing to spend time with sinners? We don't know. But somewhere this deep jealousy and envy comes into their hearts. And their hearts are hardened against Jesus. And they want to do everything they can to destroy him, to, to make clear that he is a liar. And it gets really, really bad. This anger against him, this jealousy gets really, really bad. Look at verse 65. Did you see how bad it gets? And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying, prophesy. Hitting him on the head like, oh, prophesy, who hit you? And the guards received him with blows. They hated the truth. 
And they did everything that they could to destroy that truth. Now, one of the things is, as we come to this text, we, we must consider for ourselves how are we like the religious leaders that night? In what way are we, we, we like them as we put Jesus in the dock and decide what we're going to make of him and sit in judgment over him? And there's two categories of people, I guess, as we approach this, as we think about it. There's, there's some in here likely who, who don't believe, who have not yet believed, who, who are struggling to believe that this Jesus who's in the dock this morning to believe that what he's saying here is really true, that he really is the Savior of the world, that he really did die on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead conquering sin and death, and it's just too much to believe. And maybe you want to sit there and think, well, can't can he just be a good teacher and kind of be, be good at you know, self-help and, and teaching me ways to love others well? Can he just be a helpful teacher? But as we saw earlier, he can't be, can he? His words don't allow it. As we mentioned before, he's, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he really is who he said he is. And you must wrestle with that if you haven't yet believed. And for, for those of us who have believed, you once sat in judgment too, Right? He was in the dock, and you were deciding whether or not you were going to believe him or not. And thankfully, you believed. But the unfortunate thing I think we do is we still have a tendency to put Jesus back in the dock, don't we? Put him back into that place as we decide what, we, what we're going to think of him. Maybe it's that moment. We, we put him in the dock, and, and we, we're trying to decide, in this moment... In this situation going on in my life, Jesus, I think I know better than you how to handle it. When we do that, we're putting him in the dock. Or maybe, maybe when we find ourselves enticed by that sin, and we look at that sin, and then we look at Jesus in the dock, and we decide that sin looks more beautiful than he does. And we're judging and deciding between him and other things. Maybe he's in the dock because we feel threatened by him sometimes. Maybe threatened by his radical nature and his radical call on us. Like, God, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I, I believe you're my Savior, but this is too much. You want too much from me. Is that you? Or maybe Jesus, we don't, we put him kind of in the dock because... He exposes who we really are, doesn't he? He exposes our selfishness, and we don't like it. He exposes our lack of love for others. He exposes our self-righteousness, how we're really relying on ourselves. And so even though many of us have believed, and we do believe, we still struggle, don't we? We still put him back in that place of judging and, and judging and, and choosing between him and whatever else it is, that decision we're going to make, that sin we're going to commit, the way we're going to love or not love others, the way we're going to follow him or not follow him. And the whole time, Jesus is there saying, I am 
I'm He. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. Will you trust? Will you believe me? Do you believe Him? Let's look at Jesus' words real quick. Verse 62. Jesus said, let's be reminded, I am And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let's make no mistake about what Jesus is claiming here. No mistake. Jesus was asked the direct question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he said, I am. I'm he. Now, the religious leaders probably had a little bit different definition and expectation of who this Christ, Messiah, was going to be. They were expecting certainly a king, who Jesus was, but they were expecting a king who was going to take over and be put on the throne and and the Jewish people would be able to rule again and, and Jesus, yes, he is going to rule and completely and fully with no end to his kingdom. But first, the king had to go to the cross. First, the king had to go to the cross because because he came for the sick. He came for the sinners. He he came to to do that which you and I cannot do, right? I was reminded in thinking about this of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There's a moment towards the end. Edmund, one of the Pevensey kids, has been captured and is held hostage by the witch, And Aslan, the the Christ character in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan goes and meets with the witch and makes an agreement with her. And the witch is just giddy about it. Two of the Pevensey kids, uh, Susan and Lucy, follow after to see what's happening. They take Aslan, the witch and and her cohorts. They they take Aslan, they lay him down, they tie him up on the stone table. They shave him, humiliate him, and then kill him. Susan and, and Lucy are besides themselves. They, they come back the next morning, and whenever they come back, they, they hear a loud crash, a loud bang, and they see that this table that he'd been laying on was broken in two, and Aslan was gone. And Susan cries out, is it more magic? And from behind her, she hears Aslan. Yes, it is more magic. And they ask, what is going on here? And and Aslan appears to be bigger and mightier and more powerful than ever. And he goes on to explain to them, you see, the witch didn't understand. She didn't know the, the, the depths of things. She didn't know everything that she needed to know, much like our religious leaders this morning, right? She didn't know everything that she needed to know. He said, if she could have seen all the way back to the dawn, at the very beginning of the creation of Narnia, she would have known that when a willing victim who had, been, who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Jesus, as he's standing before them, as he's saying, I am the Christ, the Messiah, trying to present before them something much bigger, much grander, much bolder than they could have ever hoped for, ever expected, that he has come to undo death. That he came to die for the traitor, 
to be killed for the traitor, to be killed for, for you and I, so that we might have life. He came that death itself would begin to work backward. This proclamation of I am is big and it's bold that he is the Messiah and understand we need to be clear on what he was saying when he said that he's the Messiah, but he says more than that too, doesn't he? And he says more than that by actually quoting and taking two different pieces of of Old Testament uh, scripture. And you and I, we, we may hear what Jesus says and we might not immediately connect them with Old Testament scripture. These religious leaders that night, they connected immediately with what he was saying they knew he was talking about Psalm uh, 110 and, and Daniel 7. They immediately knew it. They knew the passages and what he was claiming. And so that we might know a little better, I want to read those passages real quick. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit where in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And, and Jesus takes from that the sitting at the right hand of God. And then Daniel 7 and verse 13 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. These were passages that these religious leaders knew well. They loved these passages. They were passages of looking forward to the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus was saying they're true of me. That's who I am. And and understand what he's saying. Not only am I the Messiah, he's saying I'm the one who's going to be coming on the clouds which is profound, because what does the one coming on the clouds come to do? But to judge, to be the great judge on the last day. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I, I'm coming back to the judge, and you see the irony of the situation as he's sitting there in the dock on that night. He's saying, do, do you hear me? Do you understand? I know I'm sitting here right now. But one day, What you think about me and who I am is going to change everything about what happens whenever I come back riding on the clouds. Say, not just am I the Messiah, (laughs) not only am I the judge, he's also saying, I am God. Those words from from Daniel 7 combine these descriptions of one who has both human attributes and divine attributes. The Jewish people didn't know exactly what to do with that or or what that meant, but we see it in Jesus as the God-man is standing right there before them. And Jesus is saying boldly, boldly, I am the Messiah, the one who came to rescue this world. I am the judge and I am God This is a bold proclamation by Jesus, isn't it? And we can have no mild response to it. There is no room for a mild response. He either is who he says he is, or he is not. There is no middle ground. And our answer 
to who he is changes everything. Changes who rules us. Changes who saves us. It changes who gets to decide what is good for us. It changes the entire trajectory of our life. And if you have trusted in him, if you do believe he, he, he really is who he said he is here, that he really is the Messiah, then our identity is now found in him. We are identified with him, our Savior. And just as he's sitting in the dock and our world evaluates whether or not they're going to believe in him, so too now if you are in him, connected with him, saved by him, redeemed by him, you too now sit in the dock. And the world looks at you, deciding what it's going to think of you and what it's going to think of your Savior. How? How will, how do you and I handle being put in the dock, being put in that place uh, of judgment? Do, do we go about demanding our rights? Jesus sure didn't. Will we respond humbly as he did? The, the one who didn't even say a word as these accusations are just flying at him from every single direction. Will we respond with that kind of humility? And yet at the same time, when he was asked a direct question, he was bold enough to stand firm on the truth, even though it would mean his death. I don't know if you caught it earlier, but until the moment Jesus spoke, they did not have evidence to convict him. Jesus chose on that night in the dock to speak the words of truth that he knew were going to lead him to the cross. Could you and I be so bold as we find ourselves in the dock? Humble enough to know when to be quiet. Humble enough to not be concerned with demanding our rights. But yet bold enough to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even as we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Whether it's fair or not, I don't think it's fair. Jesus shouldn't have been on trial, right? He was innocent. There was nothing to convict him of guilt on that night. He was telling the truth. But yet Jesus is still on trial today. He's on the dock before us this morning. For some of you, it may be for the very first time, will you believe him? For others of us, he's on the dock and we have to decide, are we going to continue to trust him? Are we going to continue to follow him even when it's difficult and even when it's hard and even when it means not getting our way? Our response to this trial, our response to Jesus in the dock, it means everything. Jesus was asked, are you the Christ, 
the Son of God. And he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus has told us who he is. Do you believe him? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his incredible confession of who he is that we might know that he truly is the Messiah. Would you be with us all now as we decide what we're going to do with who he said that he is. For those who have never embraced you, I pray you would be at work on their hearts, convicting them more and more of the truth of Jesus' words and that he truly is who he said he is. And for those of us who have already expressed faith in our Savior, Oh, would you help us to trust? Help us to help our faith to grow. That we would not be putting you in the dock, deciding in each moment of each day whether we're going to follow you or not. But that we would follow our Messiah the one who came down and lived for us, died for us, and is risen for us. Oh, help our unbelief this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.